0: Uh, Take our Bibles and open, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 8. Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 8 as we carry on in our series uh, looking to Jesus, 1 Kings. And if you're not really sure where 1 Kings is in your Bible, feel free to use the table of contents. Uh, You'll be very happy to know that 1 Kings is still right before 2 Kings. So, you're welcome. 1 Kings chapter 8. There have been uh, some times over the years where um, I've had the opportunity to preach at other churches or at other events in different places, and there's part of me that uh, never really knows what to expect when I go to those places. The vast majority of places that I have been to are places that I'm somewhat familiar with before I go, so it's not really too bad. Uh, But there's one thing that happens every time that I go away, and it's something that I haven't been able to shake and probably because it's something that I don't want to be able to shake, and that is that whenever I go away uh, to another place on a weekend, I really miss being here. Like, I really miss being here, and, and I think part of the reason for that is because I love what God is doing here, and I love who God has brought here, and I love who God continues to bring here, and There's just something special that happens when God's people gather together that doesn't happen at any other place or in any other way within our lives. There's something that happens here in these moments that doesn't happen if you're part of a club or you're on a team or when you go to work. There's just something unique, something special that happens when God's people come together. And I believe that happens because this church is committed to some very specific things. And we begin to catch glimpses of that long before Jesus ever plants the big sea church. We start to catch glimpses of this here in 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is not really a passage that we come to very frequently, but it is one of the more important passages in all of the Old Testament because it's here that a place is made for the name of God to dwell. So a place is made for the name of God to dwell to dwell. Solomon now has built the temple, and the temple was built to be the place where there would be no question whatsoever that this is where God was. He would be there, his name. In other words, everything about God's character and his attributes and everything about what God represents would be in the temple. And this passage now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, really serves to teach us one really important lesson. God must be central to the gathering of his people. God must be central to the gathering of his people. When God's people come together, who he is, his character, his attributes, his work, his power, must be the focal point of our coming together. Which means then, that we are not central to our gathering. When God's people come together, who we are, our personalities, our abilities, our work, our accomplishments, must never be the focal point of our time together problem is that there's many churches who are gathering just like we are this morning, and instead of making God the focal point of their gathering together, they are making themselves and their needs and their desires the starting point of their experience together. I recently heard another pastor quote an author about this very thing. He said this, the author wrote this, Many pastors today can preach whole messages with little more than a tip of the hat to a clause or two taken from a biblical context that few, if any, recognize. Even more pastors have decided that using the Bible is a handicap for meeting the needs of the different generations. Therefore, they've gone to drawing their sermons from the plethora of recovery and pop psychology books that fill our Christian bookstores. The market forces demand that we give them what they want to hear if we wish them to return and pay for the mega sanctuaries that we have built. Like, I read that, and I had to read that a couple of times to make sure that I was actually hearing what this guy was saying. And, like, the market forces demand that we give them what they want to hear if we wish them to return. And then I just prayed, God, may that never be so here. my God, may we never be a church that caters to the demands of the market forces and in the process simply sacrifices what God has already said. God must be central to the gathering of his people because when the church ceases to make God central to the gathering of his people, then we essentially cease to be the church. Now, on the face of it, that sounds basic, doesn't it? Like, it sounds fairly elementary that when we gather as the church, God should be the focus of our gathering, that it makes sense that if you and I are coming to church, that we should expect to talk about God, and we should expect to pray to God, and we should expect to sing to this God, and to sing about this God, and we should expect to talk about how holy this God is, and how sinful we are, and how much this God loves us, that he would send his only son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sins and give us new life. And yet, for a long time, that, has not the way, that is not the way that it's been. Pastors have stood before congregations and preached messages of self-help. Yeah. Worship leaders have stood before congregations and led songs that make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. Teachers have stood in Sunday school classrooms and taught messages that are based on self-help and recovery and pop psychology. And in the process, countless numbers of people, at best, are not living the abundant life that Jesus Christ died and rose again to give them. And at worst, countless numbers of people are headed to an eternity without Christ because their church was not willing to lead them over the course of a lifetime to plumb the depths of the gospel. Which I think is why 1 Kings chapter 8 needs to mean a lot to us this morning. This is where it comes into play. Solomon now has built a temple. He is dedicating the temple to the Lord. So just a little bit of context here to help us get our bearings in this place in God's word. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you may remember from our study a few weeks ago, David wanted to build a house for God. And God came to David and said, no, you're not going to build me the house. Instead, your son Solomon is going to build it. And David now, by this point in 1 Kings chapter 8, David has died, and Solomon has spent the past seven years constructing this temple, and he has spared no expense whatsoever in the construction of the temple. Solomon has used the best builders. He has used the best materials. The temple was overlaid in gold and silver. Like, not just parts of it, but the entirety of the temple is overlaid in gold. And there were many different precious stones that would line the pillars and the walls inside the temple. Like, as a physical structure, the temple was absolutely spectacular. Like, it was outstanding. There was no comparison to this structure that Solomon had just built. But again, what makes the temple so outstanding was that the temple was where the glory of the Lord would be among his people. That's why the temple was built. Not only that, but for Solomon and for the people of God now who are living First Kings chapter 8, the reality of the temple seemed to signify a brand new day for them because it looked to them like the kingdom of God had come and they were living the kingdom of God. Like God was fulfilling all of his promises that he had made generations before. And I want you to see how all of this comes together within God's word from the very beginning to where we find ourselves right now in 1 Kings chapter 8, especially as we've been going through this series in God's word. And as we do this, I hope it reminds you not only how you can see the faithfulness of God weaving his way through the entirety of biblical history, but I hope it encourages you that you can see the faithfulness of God even weaving through your own life as well. So check this out. One commentator has defined the kingdom of God like this. He says, The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and with God's blessing. So the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and with God's blessing. So let's take a minute and break this down. And again, I want you to see God's faithfulness in all of this. So first of all, they are God's people. So way back in Genesis 32 in verse 12, God promised this to Jacob, which he also promised to Abraham and Isaac before him. Genesis 32 verse 12 says, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude.'" So God promised way back in Genesis 32 that that he would make for himself a people that they could not even number. Then we flip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 20. Hundreds of years later, as Solomon is building the temple, 1 Kings 4 verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So after all of these years, God has been faithful to his promise to make for himself a people who could not be numbered. So, they're God's people, but then notice this second, they are in God's place. Back in Exodus 23 and verse 31, God promised this to Moses. He says, And I will set your border from the Red Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Now then, we flip ahead to 1 Kings 4, verse 21. Again, time of Solomon, and 1 Kings 4:21 says, "Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life." So that is amazing, like right down to the mile marker. God provides for them on the promise that He has made to them. So they are God's people, and they are in God's place. And now they are under God's rule and with God's blessing. So go all the way back again to Genesis chapter 12. And God says this to Abram, Genesis 12 and verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is the one who commands, God is the one who blesses those who are obedient to him, and he gives the people his blessing so that they will be a blessing to the people around them. Then we fast forward one more time to our passage today in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 21, where it says this, And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So God now is ruling over them and he is blessing his people. And to these people who are living, 1 Kings chapter 8 It looks to them as though they are living the kingdom of God, and that leads the people of God now to respond to God in a very specific way in 1 Kings chapter 8. So again, I want you to see that there's one overarching reality that the construction and the dedication of the temple helps us to understand, and that is that God must be central to the gathering of his people. God must be central to the gathering of his people, and the same must be true for us today. So what I want to do with uh, you this morning is walk through this passage in 1 Kings chapter 8 and show you six essentials for when God's people gather. Six essentials for when God's people gather. Let's start with this. Essential number one, a passion for God's worship. We must have a passion for God's worship. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes the leaders of the fathers houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David which is Zion and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Athanum, which is the 7th month and all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their rings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. So notice here, first of all, that all of the people of Israel are gathering together for this special occasion. So verse one, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the houses. Verse two, all the men of Israel. Verses three and four, all the elders were there and the priests and the Levites are there. And verse five, all the congregation of Israel has assembled before Solomon. So all of these people are gathered together for this special occasion. The religious leaders are there, the political leaders are there, the family leaders are there. All of God's people are gathering together. But central to what is happening is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's mentioned in verse one, verse three, verse four, verse five, verse six, and twice in verse seven. So the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was a portable shrine for God's people. It was a box of sorts that they would carry with them wherever they went. And and this entire box was also overlaid with gold. And and on the top, there uh, there was a golden angel on each end of the lid of the box that was facing in towards the middle. And inside the Ark, inside the box, was the law of God. It was the two tablets of stone given to Moses on Mount Sinai. More than that, though, The Ark of the Covenant was the sign of the presence of God's glory among his people. It was the sign of the presence of God's glory among his people. So it's important for us to see at the very beginning here that with the Ark, not only are the people in the presence of God, but more importantly, God is with his people. Which leads them then to do this in verse 5. Look again, chapter 8 and verse 5. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Now, don't forget the context here, okay? The people have seen the faithful hand of God follow through on all of his promises to them. And so now, they're worshiping this God by sacrificing so many sheep and so many oxen that they have lost count. Like, they cannot count how many animals that they have sacrificed. This is extravagant worship to God. This is giving God everything. And this is what worship should be. Like, when God reveals himself to us, we should respond to him with extravagant worship. Like giving him everything that we have and holding nothing back for ourselves because our God has been kind to show himself to us. Now, to be clear, we do not gather at a temple like they did, obviously. We do not celebrate feasts like they did. We do not offer sacrifices and shed the blood of animals to enter into the presence of God like they did because... God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly left his throne as a king in heaven and came to earth as a humble servant. And Jesus became the one and only and final sacrifice that would allow us, because of his shed blood on the cross in our place, to enter into the presence of God for all of eternity. But then, after Jesus died on the cross, three days later, he rose from the dead, and that became the ultimate confirmation that that sacrifice was fully accepted by God and that sin and death had been defeated forever. Like this is the good news that changes everything for us as God's people. This turns everything around for us. And we see the hand of this very same good God within our lives. Like take just a minute and and think back over the past week. Past seven days in your life. Think back over the past month. Maybe even go back a little bit further. Think back over the past year, the past two years, the past five years. and, And think of all of those times, even just recently, where God has delivered you from temptation. Like Think of all of those times where God has given you wisdom to go one way and not to go another way. And then only a little while later, you can look back and see that if you had gone that way, it would have been total disaster. But you didn't know that at the beginning because God was kind enough to show himself to you and lead you in a different direction that prevented you from going that other way. Just look back and and think about the times where God has protected you at times and in ways that you didn't even know you needed it. Where God has blessed you with time or with finances or groceries that you needed to eat or with laughter or with healing or with help in some cases that you did not even ask for and then take some time and think back to that moment where god in his grace showed you the depth of your sin and the height of his holiness and the reality that you needed the savior and the reality too that you have been rescued from an eternity in hell and how that has changed your life forever like when we think about that, when we think that God has revealed Himself to us in that way, that should lead us then to passionate worship of this good and glorious God. And specifically a response that lays everything down before him in praise. Like just think about this for a minute. As God's people, we gather together like this every weekend. We come together and, and we come together, we all come from different experiences, different problems, different joys, different celebrations. And we all come here with different needs, but we need to remember that as a family of faith, as God's people gather, we come together under the same sovereign God. This one sovereign God is sovereign over your needs and he's sovereign over my needs. Even though our needs are different, God can still provide for every single need within our lives. Like I love just reading the Psalms and and realizing again how the Psalms so often describe a whole body, wholehearted experience of response to God in worship, like lifting up our voices and lifting up our hands and lifting up our heads and shouting our praise to the Lord and falling down on our knees and bowing down and clapping our hands and sometimes even just being quiet before God. So because God is kind enough, to reveal himself to us. We must respond to him in passionate worship, which we cannot do without the second essential when God's people gather together. Essential number two, a commitment to God's word. A commitment to God's word. So a passion for God's worship and now a commitment to God's word. Take a look, chapter eight and verse nine. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So notice something really important here, that the word of God and the presence of God are inseparably linked. The word of God and the presence of God are inseparably linked. So remember a little bit of the context here, okay? The ark represented the presence of God's glory among his people, And inside the ark were the two tablets of stone that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments. So Moses comes down from the mountain and on these tablets are written the law of God as instruction for how the people are to live in relationship to God, but also in relationship to one another. It's an affirmation of God's promise that they are his people. So the ark represents the presence of God's glory and inside the ark is the word of God. So the word of God and the presence of God are inseparably linked. But verse 9 also serves as a picture that the best place for us to find God is in his word. Like, Just think about this for a minute. Your life will not change if all I do is stand up here and tell you what I think. You don't need to hear what I think. I don't need to hear what I think. Like, what you need to hear is what God says. That's what we need to hear. Why? Because in the word of God, we meet the presence of God, which shows us the power of God. And just think for a minute what happens when you start to string all those things together. When the presence of God and the power of God and the word of God meet the child of God, lives are going to change, sin will be defeated, joy will be found, and people will be saved. Like when you come to this gathering of God's people in this church by God's grace, you will never hear anyone stand up here and preach a message of politics or philosophy or religion or opinions or clever tips and tricks and ideas about how to be a better person by Friday. Why? Because we are unapologetically committed to the preaching of the word of God and the word of God alone. Because we are totally convinced that it is the word of God by the power of the spirit of God that changes the people of God. Like, like just think about this. You could walk out of this room right now. Don't. Okay. Don't. Unless you have to go to the bathroom or something, that's okay. But you could theoretically, you could walk out of this room, walk down that hall and walk down that other hallway into any one of those Harvest Kids classrooms right now. And every single one of those sweet and precious little kids are being fed on the word of God, fed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like you could walk into our youth ministry on any given Wednesday night, any time of the year, and those sweet and not so little kids are being fed on the word of God. They are being fed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our men's and women's Bible studies, our discipleship classes, our discipleship process, by the grace of God. Every single ministry right across the life of this church, not because of us, again, by the grace and the mercy of God, is gospel, 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 gospel. Why? Because the gospel of God, the word of God, is what changes us and it is the only hope of changing the lost because in the bible and specifically in the gospel we see the power and the presence of god that will ultimately change the people of god so the worship of god and the word of god are central to the gathering of the people of god just like it needs to be for us today which leads us then to this third essential which is no coincidence when these first two come together when we have a passion for God's worship and a commitment to God's word, it is no coincidence then that it leads us to essential number three, a zeal for God's glory. A zeal for God's glory. Look at what happens next. Chapter eight and verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Can you... Just picture what that must have been like. like can you just try and put yourself in that, in that context, in that situation, just imagine yourself standing there in that group and, and the glory of God descends so powerfully and it is so overwhelming in that moment that the priests could not even stand up to do what they were supposed to do. And I look at this and I wonder what would happen today if the spiritual leaders in our country were captivated like this by a vision for God's glory. If, if I was captivated like this by a vision for God's glory. Like to realize and, and to be struck by the reality that God is not simply a recently updated, souped up, slightly better version of us. Like that is not who God is but instead to see that he is completely set apart from sin and he is entirely high above his creation. There is no sin in God, there is no injustice in God, there is no impurity in God, there is no deceit in God. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Like this is the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. This is the God who sustains his creation by the word of his power. This is the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could cross over and be delivered. This is the God who calms the storms and heals the sick and raises the dead. This is the God who has come to you and to me and saved us from our sins and given us life in Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Like this God is worthy of our glory. This God is worthy of our praise. So the people have seen the glory of God. Notice Solomon's response in verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an, an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Let's so pause here for a second. We, we call this the transcendence and the imminence of God. The transcendence and the imminence of God. God is transcendent. In other words, he transcends everything in that God is high above his people. So verse 12, he dwells in thick darkness. He's different from us. But at the same time, he is also imminent. In that he is close to us, he is near to us. God is here among his people. Verse 13, he dwells in an exalted house. Like there is much about God that we know because he's made himself known to us in his word and in his son. But there's also so much about God that remains a mystery to us. Like this is our God. He is glorious. He is great. He is different from us. And this is why our God is worthy to be glorified. That leads Solomon to lead the people then to glorify God for both the clarity and the mystery of God. Verse 15 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised. So he's looking back and remembering what God has done and then giving God the glory. Verse 18, But the Lord said to my father David, again, God is in control of all of this. Verse 20, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Again, looking back, God has been faithful yet again. For I have risen, verse 20, I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. Verse 21, the covenant of the Lord that that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. God has done all of this. God has been faithful from the very beginning. He's looking back and God has worked on behalf of his people and now his people are glorifying him by remembering what God has done. And so when God's people gather together, when we gather together as God's people, we must have a zeal for God's glory. Like sermons preached that cause us to remember what God has done, and songs sung that cause us to remember what God has done, and prayers prayed that cause us to remember what God has done. Gatherings where God is clearly at the center, where He is the focus of what we sing, and what we say, and what we do. And the same is true for every single one of our lives. Every single life represented in this room right now. Like there should be times, regular times for all of us, where as individuals we are stepping back from the routine of our life and we're stepping back sometimes even from the chaos of our life and we are remembering all that God has done for us. Like looking back and remembering, God, I remember how you brought me through that trial. And I remember how you brought me through that health crisis. And I remember how you walked with me through my grief. And and I remember when the finances were tight and I didn't know where anything was going to come from the next day. God, you walked with me and you carried me through that. And you brought me to this place now. Like we need to be stepping back and looking and remembering the faithfulness of God with purpose, with intentionality, and joyfully giving him the glory for all that he has done. Because when we pursue this zeal for God's glory, it should lead us then to essential number four, a longing for God's power. A longing for God's power. This section now, starting in verse 22, is really kind of the hub of all of chapter 8, where Solomon prays this prayer of dedication of the temple to the Lord. So follow along in this prayer to the Lord, starting at verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Like, that's amazing, isn't it? Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built You have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Skip down to verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk. And grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Jump down to verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which you have to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray toward you toward their, toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who have carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And notice here what Solomon prays for. Verses 25 to 30, he prays for God's presence. Verses 31 and 32, he prays for justice for the nation. Verses 33 and 34, he prays for repentance and redemption. Verses 35 and 36, provision. Verses 37 to 40, forgiveness and deliverance. Verses 41 to 43, salvation for the outsider. Verses 44 and 45, victory for the people. And verses 46 to 53, he prays for revival. There is not a single part of their lives where God is not necessary. Like they need God for everything and the same is true for us. For example, justice for our nation will not come from our government alone. We need to repent and be forgiven and shown compassion from the God who is sovereign over our nation and then justice will roll like the waters. Everything from salvation to provision depends on us humbling ourselves before the Lord so that he will show his power among us. We are desperate for his power among us. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a guy from another church here in our city and he's about my age. His kids are about the ages of my kids and he was telling me about how one of his kids has chosen to walk away from the Lord in ways that have absolutely devastated him and his wife. Like so far gone to the point that there are days at a time where they don't even know where he is. Some of you know that desperation because you've walked through that valley. Some of you might even be walking through that valley right now. And for some of you, it's not parenting so much. Maybe it's a health crisis or it's finances or it's a job situation or it's another family crisis that you can't really fix. And the point here is that there is not a single solitary part of our lives where we do not need Jesus Christ. We need him for everything. We are desperate for his power. Apart from Christ We can do nothing. Six essentials for when God's people gather. A passion for God's worship, a commitment to God's word, a zeal for God's glory, a longing for God's power. Here's essential number five. A devotion to God's commands. A devotion to God's commands. Look at verse 57. Solomon stands up before the people for one final word and he says in verse 57, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Notice again in verse 58, Solomon gives us here an important clue to lasting change and obedience within our lives. Verse 58, it begins with hearts that are inclined towards God. It begins with hearts that are inclined towards God. The way to lasting change within our lives is to pray for God to change our hearts, to change us not just as a church, but to change us as his children. God, we want our city and our nation to be changed, so change our hearts. God, we want our church to be changed, so change our hearts. God, we want our families to be changed, so change our hearts. God, I want my life to be changed. I want to put this sin behind me. I want to put your holiness before me, so help me, God. Change my heart. And why is this so important? It's important because God calls us to walk in all of his ways. That's what Solomon's praying here, like this is the life of discipleship. He's calling us to keep his commandments and his statutes and his rules, like this is all encompassing. This is every part of our lives lived for the glory of God. In fact, he says it again in verse 61, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Again, it begins with hearts that are inclined toward him. So why such an emphasis on the heart? Why such an emphasis on the heart? Because like we've said and heard so many times before, when God gets our heart, he gets everything. When God gets our heart, he gets everything. He gets every part of our lives. When God gets our heart, he gets our mind. When God gets our heart, he gets our hands. And when God gets our heart, he gets our finances. And when God gets our hearts, he gets our relationships. And when God gets our hearts, he gets our families and our marriages. And when God gets our heart, he gets our kids. And when God gets our heart, he gets every single part of who we are. He gets all of us. So if the heart doesn't change, then not much else will change either, which means that if you are willing to give God your heart and make him your greatest love, then it will lead to a passion for God's worship and it will lead to a commitment to God's word and a zeal for God's glory and a longing for God's power and a devotion to God's commands and then finally to essential number six, an urgency for God's mission. An urgency for God's mission. Look at verse 59. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord Be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. So it's an urgency for God's mission. Solomon built the temple as the place where God's name would dwell among his people. It's a place that would magnify the glory and the character and the ways of God. And Solomon's prayer is that all the peoples of the earth would look upon this temple of God and know the God who lives in this temple. We've talked about this before, but but I think it's really helpful for us to come back to this and and see this again from the very beginning of God's word to the very end of God's word. So notice the temple storyline that runs its way through this passage. The temple storyline starts in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve did not need a temple because God's presence was with them everywhere they went. By the time we get to the book of Exodus, the people have built a tabernacle, which again was kind of like a portable shrine that represented God's presence among the people and they would pick it up and take it with them and set it up wherever they went. Then we get to our passage here in 1 Kings chapter 8, and Solomon has built a permanent temple for the presence of God. Later in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord has left the temple and the prophet Ezekiel is looking ahead now to a new temple. Soon after Ezekiel, the temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., which solidified the reality that when God is in the temple, nothing can overcome it. But when God leaves the house, it is subject to destruction, which is an important lesson for us. When God is out of the picture, it is not going to go well. Like when God is out of the picture of your life, that's not going to go well for you. When God is out of the picture of your marriage, that's not going to go well. When God is out of the picture of your finances, that's not going to go well. When he's out of the picture of your relationships, that is not going to go well. But then we keep reading through the Bible and we get to the Gospels and we read in John chapter 1 that Jesus came. And John said that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. It's back to that Exodus picture again. Then, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Why is that important? That's important because the curtain being torn represents the reality that Jesus is making a way for sinners like us to enter into the presence of this holy God forever. Furthermore, when Jesus was here, he promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So after Jesus has died and risen again and ascended to where he sits at the right hand of the Father, the apostle Paul says that the church is the holy temple of the Lord, Ephesians chapter two. In fact, the Bible even goes So far as to say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? But it still doesn't end there, because for all believers in Jesus Christ, there is still coming a day when we will forever be in the presence of our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. And once again, there will be no physical structure or building to be a temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because Revelation 21 verse 22 says that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so we look back on all of that from the very beginning of God's word to the very end of God's word. And it solidifies for us that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection and in his ascension, we experience now the uninterrupted presence of the glory of God in eternity. He has made a way for us to know and to love and to be with God forever. That's why he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy to be glorified. So for us, right now, as the church of Jesus Christ and as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. Now, keep in mind, when Solomon built this temple, the temple was to be a visual reminder to all of the people around that this is where God was. This is where you could find God. This is where you could see God at work. And so now, as Christians, as those living as a temple of the Holy Spirit of God... Our lives become a visual testimony to believers and unbelievers alike, to all the peoples of the earth, that there is a God and He is Lord, and He has come to show us His glory by dwelling among His people and bringing salvation to the nations. And now, as those who have been changed and have been captivated and have been left in wonder by who this God is, we now have the responsibility to take this good news to the nations so that all the peoples of the earth, whether they live across the street or around the world, will know. That that the Lord is God and there is no other. Because there is still coming a day, Lord willing, very soon, when our Savior will come again and one day people from all of the nations will gather around the throne of the Lord God and give him glory and honor and praise that he alone deserves forevermore. This is good news. This is why we worship this glorious God. Like loved ones, I submit to you again today that we must ever hold it before us and never let it falter. That God must always be central to the gathering of his people. Because if God is not central to the church, then we cease to be the church.